Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tobias Lefkowitz joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He's Citigroup's chief U.S. equity strategist. Great to have you. With us here, let's pick up the pieces a little bit after what we saw last week uh, in Washington. We're, we're wondering about animal spirits and the degree to which they are fueled by, uh, stimulated by what's going on in Washington, or perhaps not. Uh, what did you make of what happened last week at the conclusion of, of the debate, that 18-day debate over health care reform in Washington? There, there's so many different people, you know, opining on this, and and I guess my sense is that people got either too excited or too depressed yeah. around it. Um, you know, we wrote something overnight saying that. Uh, just like on November 9th or 10th, and you know, people were saying the Democratic Party was was done for, and you know, stick a fork in it. Um, the the same thing is kind of being written, in kind of the obituaries for the Republicans now, over the weekend, given the failure of the of the repeal deal. Um, I think both of these are highly exaggerated. Both parties have um, splits and factions, and uh, you know, there were even comments that that I thought were pretty well founded that the negotiations were kind of going on between the different sides of the Republican Party around the repeal deal and then once they put in this kind of deadline we're voting on friday you know take it or leave it that this kind of hardened positions as opposed to the compromise so you can walk away and say hey the freedom caucus has kind of burnished its conservative credentials and might be more willing to compromise in a future endeavor or that's it they've, they've it's worked and they're going to continue to be that hard i think time will tell i think these these kind of off-the-cuff responses and are, are more I don't know if the right word is filtered by partisanship, and therefore each side kind of hammers away at that. I still believe the Republicans have to deliver on a number of their promises before they go to 2018's midterms. Otherwise, they're going to be slaughtered. Um, and, and they kind of know that. I mean, they've been telling people, for example, in Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, that's been a horrible deal for seven years. Um, and then you do nothing to address it and we'll let it explode I, I don't think that sells well in Peoria. Fold this into to your your world, the equity space. We've been told by so many people here that the Trump trade really had very little to do with with Trump. That things had had begun to to move before he was uh, elected. After we saw that happen on Friday, did that change anything? Say in the healthcare sector, or your your prospects for for the equities markets going forward? So, so I agree that much of the the activity was already starting before him. For example, ten uh, year break evens had started to turn in February of last year. Um, not February of this year. Uh -huh. So um, it's, it's hard for people to kind of get their heads around that this started 12 months ago or 13 months ago. Um, but there's more than that. There's a lot of other pieces of evidence that, that suggest things are improving before the president uh, was elected. Um, I, I do find the, the, you know, the reactions in markets very, again, kind of off the cuff, um, it, it's not what I would call real investing. It's trading around kind of a news headline. Um, my job is to kind of figure out what's going to likely play out three, six, nine months from now, not what's going to happen, you know, tomorrow morning at, at the at the opening of trading. Um, and and I don't think a lot of investors make money 
on these shoot from the hip type uh, decisions within you know a week or two they find themselves on the losing end of that transaction so i i I, I get frustrated a little bit by it because I think people are spending way too much time on it instead of trying to think about it. And, and what we've seen really in the last two weeks talking to institutional investors is this extraordinarily myopic mm. kind of what happened in the last week. Will it continue next week? And it's you know, stuff that I just get really annoyed at. Sure. I, I, maybe it's, I take it too personally. I don't know. <laughs> This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Blueberry with Tobias Lefkowitz of, of Citigroup. How worried should we be about a flatter yield curve at this point? Look, I, it, I, I think people were resisting any form of it steepening, too. Mm. So um, investors are reacting to it, and they should. It, it has impact on the financials and how they trade, um, given that the curve determines often the net, net, that net interest margin opportunity. Um, I, I've heard people, for example, financials worry more about um, the commercial industrial loan growth having decelerating. Um, and I think it is interesting to note, again, the miss on the fundamental story. The senior loan officer survey from the Federal Reserve Board on CNI lending tends to lead actual business loans by six quarters. So that, that deceleration that you're seeing currently is reflective more of the very tight financial conditions we were seeing in late uh 2015, when the credit markets were yeah. distorted by energy. And that's kind of now reversed, and we should see by the end of the year improving lending activity. So, again, it's this very myopic look at yes. what the last data point is. Don't look about where we're headed. So well, th that's the same thing going on in the yeah. curve. This is really important. It's been written up by any number of people, Ambrose Evans Pritchard and The Telegraph, doing a great treatment on it. Tobias, let's get smarter here, and we can do this with you because of your securities research uh, background. Help me here with what C&I loans actually are. Are they the car loan for David's new Bentley? The Prius, no, yeah. So, so the, <laughs> the Fed breaks out their lending survey in three different areas. They look at it in the consumer loans, real estate loans, and commercial industrial loans, which are business, you know, corporate loans. So, you know, when we talk about the credit card or when we talk about the auto that's loans, not that's the consumer loans. That's consumer loans. When we talk about, you know, real estate yeah. development, it's obvious it's real estate. When we talk about business loans, what the IBMs of the world do or what uh, Caterpillar does, that, that's – that's the kind of thing we're dealing with. How does the CNI loan rollover end? If we have a three months moving average of CNI loans rolling over, which is a chart that's ubiquitous now in research, how does that terminate? Where do you see the loan growth? Step in, if so, you will. So it's usually used as a proxy for business activity, right? If companies are borrowing money to invest, that's great. Um, and when they're not, there must be something wrong. And that's why I think everybody's so focused on this business lending yeah. growth rate slowing. But again, that's a lagging of a role. It's a lagging indicator for those um, our credit credit standards easing or, or uh, tightening. And they started easing around May of last year, which means by the end of this year, given that six quarter lag, we should see that reaccelerate. So you're going soft on us. You're telling me the soft data NFIB statistics is more indicative. A future of a new trend. Animal spirit. Only you're well, going soft on us, like oh, the Montreal. Canadiens. I'm not going soft at all. I <laughs> just know. know that the. I just know from my experience of 30 years, that or and looking at data going back 40, 45 years, that this stuff always leads business activity, and. You're supposed to look at the lead indicators, not the lagging indicators. Lagging, looking backwards doesn't really help you. I don't know anybody who's driven successfully by only watching through the rearview well, mirror. Can we bring this over to an important thing that everybody will understand? Is P.K. Subban a leading or lagging indicator? 
for the Montreal Canadiens. For, for Montreal, he's a lagging out? indicator. For National Predators, he's a leading indicator. Okay, there okay. we go. The proper David, did you get that? There was I'm a huge trade. The, that's where I was really trade of the summer. There, okay. PK yeah. Subban. What a great response you, 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 he got in you, you've Montreal. Got, you've got. Nobody in your listening world who actually has a clue who P.K. We Sube say good morning is. to all of you listening in Canada, and particularly Don Cherry, who we know tunes in every morning. But come on, my P.K. St- my, went my to fashion, the, My it, fashion model? Yeah, yeah. And, and Shea Weber went over to uh, the Montreal Canadiens, and it's an example of that bet, that big bet, David, you've got to take. Like, you wonder, is business going to take a big bet in Mr. Trump? I love that. Uh, Tobias, let me ask you just about the, the, the compliment there of soft data and hard data. How do you look at them in concert? with each other and are there is there a disconnect between the two not really okay. um I, I think the the because of the lead lag factors they aren't disconnected they just don't happen simultaneously um and i think investors tend to walk in with a particular perspective and then they choose the data they want to look at um it's i look again i need to figure out where i think the world will be in the future not where it is right the second that helps me for trading today but it has nothing to do with my investment profile over the next 6, 12 months. Um, so I always look at the leading indicators, even if it's soft data. As, as I'm, I'm not going soft. I'm looking at it as the lead indicator for the hard data. Shea Weber um, is it? He's not, certainly not his slap shot. I don't want to stand in front of a 108-mile-per-hour shot. Um, but the, the, the notion of, you know, Every time the NFIB hiring intentions has improved, mm. 12 months later, the unemployment rate has improved. Um, every time CFO serving from Duke University said they're going to spend, 12 months later, spending occurs. Every time ISM New Order Index is going up, three to six months later, well, industrial production is going up. So I, I, it's really hard to walk away from that and say, now nah, let's ignore right. this. Tobias Levkovich with us. Let's pin you down on the bull call. Where are we 12 months from now? Are you, are you more than enthusiastic so about a, equities? So we have a year-end target of 24-25 on the S&P 500. We don't, we don't have a 12-month specifically target. Um, and you know, I could see an overshoot uh, beyond that if investors really got behind us. Um, there's a lot of cash still on the sidelines. Investors haven't truly committed. And as a result, you could get the overshoot. It's, it's not our forecast, but it, there's reason to believe that investors have just not gotten there. Our panic euphoria model is still stuck in neutral territory. We don't see euphoric investors, generally speaking. But when I visit, and I've talked to probably 160 investors in the last four weeks, um, you know, sitting in front of them, chatting with them around the world, and I just don't see, you know, I think I found five bulls. That's it. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now, I haven't found. I, I, want, I don't want to suggest I found a hundred bears on the yes, other side yeah. of it, um, but I don't think people are. I don't think they have great conviction either way. I see. So it's more they're 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 frustrated. They missed the run. They're kind of happy that the reflation trade is kind of weakening because they weren't positioned there. And actually, the biggest pain they might f- suffer is if the market ran ten percent mm-hmm. because they're not ready for it. You mentioned uh, energy a few moments ago. We were talking about sectors. So what are you anticipating we'll see there in energy and materials going forward? So on the energy, we break that out. Materials in the U.S., just for people to understand, the S&P 500 material sector is really chemicals. 
So when you think of materials, you tend to think of metals and mining. That's true if you're looking at Asia, if you're looking at Europe, uh, Latin America. But in the U.S., it's really chemical. So we have a different, you know, it's a slightly different yeah. animal in that regard. Um, energy, we have, we have, we have, and I know uh, Tom's had Ed Morse on. Um, he's just great as a commodity research guy. He's still looking for $62 oil at the end of the year. And on that basis, you, you really do want to own energy and take advantage of the pullback year that we've seen. Um, we had anticipated there would be some weakness in the first quarter. And then we'd see strengthening through the balance of the year. Um, you know, the Saudis have a vested interest here in getting prices up. The Russians have an interest in getting it up. And, and, and we might see some, you know, shale cost development inflation as you've got to bring people together here to, to d- develop these new fields. Um, but they were laid off the last two years and they've got to be brought back and probably some higher cost to doing this than maybe some people are anticipating right now. How about the, the forecast for the dollar and dollar strength? How's that going to affect them? So our guys are fairly neutral on the yeah. dollar. Um, uh, I think they had better expectations going into the year than what we've seen play out. Um, and part of the, I, I would say this, I'm, I'm not an FX expert by any by any measure, but the thing I would watch, for example, in dollar euro is more about the spread between the 10-year bund and the 10-year treasury as opposed to just looking at the 10-year treasury in a vacuum as if the yield – you know, has no competition around the world. And if you go back, let's say, summertime of of um, last last year, you were looking at a 1.36, 1.37 mm-hmm. 10-year yield, but you were looking at minus 0.4 bund yield over the same 10-year time frame. That's changed as well. Right. As we've gone up, so has the bund yield. Sure. So uh, I, I think people forget that at yeah. times. Uh, is dividend growth a proxy for yield? Help help all of our listeners with this. They're addicted to dividend growth. It's worked like a charm, but you and I know the party ends one day, doesn't it? So dividend growth – look, we spent 35 years in a bond bull market. So at some point, the bond bull market ends and the dividend – Has the bond bull lost. market ended? Our sense is yes. Um, but if you, if you think in those terms, lots of the work done on Wall Street over the last – 30 years has been in this kind of nice declining interest rate backdrop. And if that were to change, then many of the analyses done is probably going to not be as benign as mm-hmm. they thought it would be. So, you know, it, it made sense to look for income growth when you had all, no alternatives and dividends are one of the ways to generate it. But I was talking to our read analyst um, yesterday and just said, you know, the read sector has been the worst performing sector since it became a sector. And part of the reason is, um, that, that yields have shifted from that 1.36, 1.37 low last summer, and there is competition for income. Let's bring this full circle. Uh, you are frustrated with those who have that myopic <laughs> view of the markets right now. What do, you, what do you say to them? What should they be looking at? What are you looking at? What's your, well, your look, vote of encouragement to them? So we look at a variety of things. We look at what are the early indicators of earnings growth. And, and I know this surprises so many people when we showed them. The tightest fit that we're going to find with earnings growth is industrial production. And that shocks people. Only about 12 13% of, um, of the economy is tied to industrial activity. But it is the most cyclical component. So the way I describe it is you don't buy 10 boxes of, of detergent when the economy is good and one when it's bad. You right. buy it as you need to launder your clothing. Okay. So you know what, what vacillates is industrial activity. And that has every indication yeah. of getting better. David, you didn't bring it full circle. I'm sorry. Anthony from New Jersey okay. sends in a photo of P.K. Subban doing a Don Cherry <laughs> imitation. I'm going to put this out on <laughs> uh, Twitter. Don even wore the same quote I, coat, I guess, the next uh, night. But it's great. Uh, and we, you know, shout out to all of Montreal and what Mr. <laughs> Subban 
uh, did, particularly for Montreal Medicine, uh, in his tenure with the Canadians. If that's too much hockey for you, good news, it will continue. Tobias Lefkowitz, thank you so much, with Citigroup. This is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. It is now a great, great pleasure to bring back someone we've talked to uh, too many times, uh, David Harrow of Harris Associates, and we'll do a little bit of politics here on the backside. David, what a great conversation earlier this morning with Kathy Matsui of Goldman Sachs Equities in Tokyo and talking with her enthusiasm about Abinomics and about the potential lift of dirt-cheap Japanese big stocks. Are they dirt-cheap? Um, they are cheap in price, but value just isn't uh, described or defined by price. You have to look at what you're getting for what you're paying. So if you look at low on the surface multiples for Japanese stocks, you have to compare it to low returns on equity and returns on capital, which when you add that to the formula, right. they don't look all that cheap. Some are, but the problem with Japanese companies in corporate Japan is their return structures are persistently low. Right. And as such, you'd be willing, you shouldn't be willing to pay any kind of a premium. In fact, you should pay a discount. They deserve their low valuations because of the low right. returns these companies suffer from. And folks, I sort of knew where the answer was going, and I set Mr. <laughs> Harrell up here. Can they finally become more Anglo-Saxon-like? That's what I asked Ms. Masui. Let me ask you as well. Are they, you know, you talk about returns and ROE. Are they going to deploy more cash to a shareholder-centric company, or is it the same old, same old? Oh, Tom, this has been, you know, I've been doing this since 1986, and I first started going to Japan in the late 80s. When was that? When did the Brewers go to the World Series? I was in uh, undergraduate school, so I think that was like 82. Anyway, anyway, I mean, here is the problem, that the Japanese managements and boards often do not view the shareholders as a very important constituent. And when you add to that the way these boards and managements are protected from hostile takeovers, you don't see activity, even though when this GPIF, the big Japanese pension fund, stated they're going to start coming down hard on Japanese companies unless they earn an 8 or 9% return on equity, which is almost laughable because what's wrong with 13 14 or 15% return on equity, especially given the nature of the inefficient balance sheets in corporate Japan? So th- this is a huge problem, and I, and I would love to say that we're making huge progress. It's slowly going in the right direction, but it's ever so slowly, and it's not broad-based at all. I mean, you just have companies that have 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% of their market cap sitting in cash earning zero. Mm. That is value destructive in our view. And when you have these low returns driven by poor capital allocation, and they're also not so good on expenses and, and profit margins, then you know the, you deserve these low prices. And I really don't know 
what's going to change it. I'm, I'm in Japan once or twice a year, and you sit there and you literally harp on these people, and they nod and go, yeah, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, and, and then they just go turn around and do the other thing. So I don't know. I, w- I, I wish I would be seeing better progress, is, but, you know, it's it's frustrating. David it's actually Curry, very frustrating. This is a remorseful David very sad. Well, let me let me pivot to ask you about India. Sad. I know you, I know you're investing in Infosys now, and I wonder if that is if that is an outlier company. In other words, when you look at the the kind of opportunity, the degree of opportunity uh, in India, is there a lot there, or, or are you taking small steps in? Well, again, there are things happening there, but yeah. it's so pricey. It is so pricey. The government is trying to do the right things. Uh, corporate India is pretty good. Uh, they have some good competitive advantages in certain things, like what the business Infosys is, is in, this outsourcing, which, by the way, the reason why prices are low is because there's questions about H-1B visas, et cetera. Yeah. That's a whole other story. But... Um, India is trying to do the right thing, and that is really op- have a more open economy and be have more liberal economic policies, conventional, uh, historical liberal economic free market policies. And, and the um, government was helped there with a, another big election win. So, so hopefully you will start to see more of these policies. I mean, GDP per head in India is still a fraction of that of China. And a lot of this is a result of their inability to drive through infrastructure projects and to get higher productivity in their economy based on simple things like roads, highways, plumbing, etc. I mean, there's a fascinating statistic about just the, the lack of plumbing in India, as an example. So, and there's so much potential. You have a two to 300 million people middle class there. Um, but then you do have this large, large lower class and large, uh, uh, very low GDP per head, uh, which they're they're trying to do something about. What's your advice to an investor who, like you, sees that opportunity in India, maybe hasn't played in that market before? What are you looking at? What are you advising they look at before they get in? Well, you have to look at prices and what they're selling for, because a lot of times this this big picture euphoria just attracts money for that very reason without looking at the price you are paying. And then it becomes a momentum market, a market that just trades on headlines. And again, that's just kind of counter to how we do things. It might work in the short term is our view, but you know, in the medium and long term, you buy quality at a low price and you be patient and that's how you make money. And the problem with, I think, the, the public is they just, they see these big themes and they want to jump on them and they do it irrespective of price paid. It's like getting on a train that's moving, but not knowing where that train's final destination is. Let's take the train up to Europe, and we've, we've seen these uh, capital-raising schemes with uh, Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank. That's it. Uh, that's why he's so remorse today. It's dilution, <laughs> it's dilution. hero with us today. I wanted to ask him about dilution. Uh, let, me, let me get your perspective on that, David, if I could. Well, in the case of Deutsche Bank, I think there's a, there was a, a very solid reason because of uh, you know the relatively low capital ratios and and a bit of opaqueness in the whole Deutsche Bank situation and I would say a lack of profitability in their core home banking market, Germany. And I've said before on this show, Germany is one of the worst markets to be a banker in. It's, it's just hyper-competitive. There's low returns. They have these things called Landesbanken, which ruin prices and give loans to anyone. And, you know, do you it's own just shares? not a good place. Do you own German shares? 
German we don't own any. We don't own any shares in German banks. And in fact, we looked at an Italian bank when Unicredit came around. You know, one of the problems we didn't invest in that bank was they have a big uh, presence in Germany, and they, their, their big, huge presence in Germany doesn't make any money. You have all these assets deployed that make no money, and it's just—it's a very difficult market that needs to be restructured. Um, so Deutsche Bank, I think that there, there was a reason why they raised capital. Now, don't forget Credit Suisse. On the other hand, they did have a capital raise, a relatively small one, a couple of years ago, um, about a year and a half ago, when Mr. Tiam just started uh, a few months after he started. And I think there was, as a result of the um, Swiss National Bank's changing capital requirements and a result of a fine they had to pay, you, you saw the RMBS fine they had to pay, um, there's a question of whether they have a strong enough capital position. From what we can see here, it appears they appear to be in decent shape, especially if they continue to improve their earning stream, which they could then build upon capital. I mean, I would rather have them look at their dividend policy, for example, yeah. uh, before they look at raising capital of shareholders and, and see what happens in the next year or so in terms of earnings. Should they, should they do M&A? Should they, should, they, should they just get through the pain and actually do M&A? I don't think there's a lot of M&A they should be doing right now that could be additive. There might be a little something here and there. As we know in Switzerland, a lot of these small private banks are suffering because yeah. of the inability to have the money to comply with new rules and regulations. Well, let's do this. And it might make sense rolling up some of those okay. small private banks. Let's come back and continue this discussion on Credit Suisse with David Harrow of Harris Associates. On Credit Suisse, it's a smaller transaction than Deutsche Bank. Clearly, they're not a comparative to Deutsche Bank. But one of the similarities is this desire to expense control. Have they expensed to the bone or is there more to go from where you sit? I think this is the beauty of the new management's approach at Credit Suisse. It's this, to borrow a Japanese term, Kaizen, continuous improvement in, in their business, constantly looking for new ways to do business processes better and cheaper. And by the way, this is how every business should function. And unfortunately, people just get a little complacent. And I think what, what uh, Tijam is doing is, is really putting a focus on being creative with, with running the business and making sure that we're looking at new ways to do things at a lower cost basis. So I think they will continually be pushing expenses down and uh, productivity up. And whether that means uh, doing creative things as far as outsourcing some back, back office stuff or, or right. doing it collectively with some of their peers, uh, they're open to all these things. And I think this fresh look at things, you know, historically, these investment banks have made so much money, right. they treat it as if it were just, you know, it was coming from the clouds. And now I think it's not that uh, easy to earn money consistently. And so this expense management's a good way right. to help create annuity-like earning streams. One more question before David Gura gets to the politics of the moment. David Harrow, help me here with the gamesmanship of mergers where people talk about Credit Suisse and Morgan Stanley mating, or you can name any other pairs you want. I, I, I can't get Credit Suisse to BNP size or Deutsche Bank size or maybe some of the UK bank size. Where do they fit in and who would they bolt onto to make a bigger bank? 
Yeah, I don't know if beggars na uh, naturally better. I think what we want them to do first and foremost is to cement their strength in private wealth management in the private bank, specifically with their franchise in Asia. And I, I believe they do have strong franchises within their investment bank in equities and in fixed income and even in doing some in the deals. And so the two have to kind of work together, and especially in Asia where there is a stronger link between wealth management and investment bank with the rich, wealthy family groups, the billionaire family groups, uh, with, with their businesses aligned with their family wealth. So I don't know if big is necessarily better. I think let's get better first and then look at size and scale. And I think there's still plenty of room to get better before you look at any kind of major M&A. As I said, some small M&A may be in the works, might make sense with some, especially with the Swiss, in the Swiss private banking sector with these smaller banks who just don't have the funds to compete anymore given today's compliance costs. We've talked an awful lot about what, what happened with health care reform portends for tax reform. Let me just ask you about regulation instead, more in your, your wheelhouse there. When, when you look at what might become of Dodd-Frank, what do you see happening and how could that affect banks like uh, Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank? I think there will be change. I mean, clearly and clearly, and I think it was Robert Barrow, and Tom, you probably remember this very good essay he wrote in the Wall Street Journal about yep. a year ago about yep. the cost of regulation. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why the economic recovery was so weak uh, post the 08, 09. I mean, it's the old pendulum story. The pendulum, the regulatory pendulum swung too swiftly to the wrong side, to the overregulation side. Good, transparent, easy-to-follow regulation is important, and it helps businesses uh, can be able to conduct commerce. But when you have overly burdensome regulation that it's just layers and layers and pages and pages, it prohibits commerce. It prohibits people from taking risks because you don't know whether what you're going to ultimately do mm. is going to be cost-effective or if the regulator is going to regulate your profits away. And whether it be healthcare, whether it be energy, whether it be financial services, all the major sectors of our economy were bombarded uh, by the previous administration and regulations that often, in my opinion, were senseless. No one looked at cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. No one looked at, you know, really what the impacts were. They just did right. it because, as a, a European chairman once told me, regulators okay. do what they do. They like to regulate. Right. David, we've run out of time. Help me here with Speaker Ryan. You're from Wisconsin. You know the gentleman from uh, Wisconsin. Uh, what does he need to do to right the ship? It's a setback, and what he needs to do is, is just find common ground with the people in his own caucus. This has always been a rambunctious caucus that he's had to deal with. Uh, remember, he kind of made a deal with him to get elected speaker to begin with. And I think you just have to find common ground. And, you know, people can't forget that you know, if everyone gives a little, no one has to give a lot. And, and this is what he has to push with that rambunctious, rowdy caucus that yep. he has. Not enough time. David Hero, let's do it again. David Hero with Harris Associates uh, this morning, particularly uh, David Guerrero, that, those thoughts on Japan. Always a pleasure to be joined by Joachim Fels. He's the global economic advisor 
uh, at PIMCO. He joins us now here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Great to have you with us. And, and I was taken by your latest March outlook here. You write about how there is a theme to PIMCO's March 2017 cyclical forum. That's scaling it back and the inspiration for that, perhaps indirectly uh, from the Fed chair, Janet Yellen. It's something that doesn't just extend to monetary policy. It's, it's a broader theme. Yeah, that's right, David. So scaling back doesn't only refer to monetary policy, but we we also, you know, we looked at the risks that we talked about going into the year after our December forum, the left tail and the right tail yes. risks. Back then we had talked about fat tails and we reassessed them and we said, hey, we think it's time to scale back a little bit some of those risks because we've learned some things over the first few months. You know, Trump didn't get aggressive uh, on on protectionism, at least not yet. And he could have done so by executive order. So at the margin, we thought that is good news. Um, also, uh, it's unlikely that we get a huge, big fiscal boost anytime soon, which could have led to an overheating of the economy and a very aggressive Fed response. So in that sense, we thought it was time to scale back some of those left tail and right tail risks. Um, the same also applies to the China risk, where the focus really is on stability ahead of the 19th Party Congress in mm. October of this year. Um, and so overall, our assessment was, well, let's scale back these left and right tail risks a little bit. We've slightly increased our outlook for growth this year. But then here's the bad news. This means central banks like the Fed, like the ECB, will feel encouraged to scale back accommodation maybe a little bit uh, earlier than previously expected. And I think that poses some risks for markets going forward. Politics in Washington is playing a much bigger role uh, on our program for sure. And I imagine that your quarterly four, when you've got Anne-Marie Slaughter there from New America and Ben Bernanke uh, of Brookings, uh, there is a spirited debate about the change going on in Washington, D.C. How much uh, how much of your time was spent talking about what's changed? Well, we spent a lot of time on this. Um, I would say about a quarter, maybe even a third of the forum, of the economic forum, we spent talking about the policy outlook. Uh, yes, with Ben Bernanke, with Anne-Marie Slaughter, Gordon Brown also weighed in with his perspective, um, uh, not only on the US politics, but also on European and, and UK politics, given Brexit. But then um, at the end of the day, politics is only part of what drives markets. Uh, there's a lot of focus on it, but there are other things like central banks. Uh, there's China, where we had a massive credit impulse last year, a positive credit impulse that really lifted all the global boats, not only Chinese financial markets, but also global financial markets. There was a rebound in global trade that we've seen over the past six months, probably sparked by this credit impulse. So there's a lot more to talk about than just Washington. And I think um, it is very dangerous to only watch the tweets um, and only look at the political headlines. Yeah. If you look at how markets have done, we've had amazingly low volatility, despite all the political volatility coming out of Washington. Yeah, come help us here. And, and I say this about the United States with your expertise on the continent of Europe. And I guess it's a form of eurosclerosis, but maybe without the negativity. Do our listeners in America, do they need to get used to dampen nominal GDP, dampened animal spirits in some American form of eurosclerosis? Well, Tom, you could, you could argue that this is actually what we have seen uh, in this entire economic expansion, which is now in its eighth year. We've had very low nominal GDP growth. Uh, we've had very dampened animal spirits. So this is, in a way, the story of this economic expansion since the great financial crisis. So we've had an American sclerosis 
for a long time. And we here at PIMCO called it the new normal and the new neutral. And I think the big debate now is, has been since the election, whether we can break out of the new normal and we can break out of the new neutral and really move back to the old normal, higher growth, higher inflation, higher interest rates. That was a debate we had in, at the December forum. That was a debate we had again in March. But our conclusion is, no, we think we are still in this new normal of low growth, low nominal growth. Not quite as right. low as we had it in the last few years, uh, but we're, we're, way, we're far away from going back to the old normal at this stage. We, we spend all of our time, and I'm hugely biased and wrong about this, folks, is the basic idea of can Europe become more Anglo-Saxon? Let me flip it on its head, thinking of the great Conrad Adenauer and the social fabric he established for Germany. Does the U.S. need to become more continental European? I think what you've seen, Tom, over the past 10, 15, maybe even 20 years is that there has been a certain convergence between the U.S. or what you call the Anglo-Saxon model and the continental European model. So you could argue the U.S. has become a little bit more continental, right? We've uh, built out the welfare state also here in the U.S. with Obamacare, etc. Um, and Europe had some uh, market-based, market-oriented reforms, at least in the early days of the euro back in the 1990s. Uh, then sparked by the crisis a few years back, some countries in Europe, like Spain, for example, also became more Anglo-Saxon by making their labor markets more flexible, allowing more wage flexibility. And, you know, Spain has been quite successful in regaining uh, uh, growth and regaining competitiveness. So I think there has been a convergence that has been going on for quite a while. David Guerra and Tom Keen in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio with Jakob Fels, Global yeah. Economic Advisor uh, at PIMCO. And Jakob, you mentioned China here a few moments ago. We had that uh, meeting a couple of weeks back. And I wonder how cognizant the Chinese government is right now of its economic situation. Are we seeing more transparency? Are we seeing more of a movement in that direction? Well, I think at the moment we're moving in the other direction because the key focus of the Chinese authorities is really to uh, ensure stability, both financial stability, but also economic stability ahead of the party congress. President Xi wants to consolidate his power. So the last thing he needs is either disruptive markets or too sharp an economic slowdown. So what we've seen is they've clamped down on the capital outflows quite successfully, at least in the near term, and it shows up in a stabilization of the currency. That also helps to stabilize domestic financial markets because all the savings, the excess savings are bottled up in China. Chinese investors have no choice but to invest domestically. So this is supporting uh, Chinese assets. Uh, and I think what we'll see in the economy is just a continuation of relatively decent growth. It's slowing over the medium term, but they have the fiscal wherewithal to stabilize it at least until the end of this year. We are more worried about the medium and longer term outlook because mm. there is a credit, bubble, a credit bubble in the making and eventually it will be very difficult to stop the capital outflows. But for now, the buzzword is really stability. Well, within any given moment, there's some backstories that are percolating. And one of them right now, Joachim, is loan demand from banks. CNI loans have rolled over. Some people are making a big deal about it, and others, frankly, are dismissing it. Uh, folks, what's the spirit, the dynamic that you see now uh, in banking loans? Yeah, it's quite interesting, Tom. We, yes, we have seen quite a significant slowdown in CNI loans here in the U.S. What's behind this? Well, if you look at it in more detail, um, banks 
um, have lent less to companies uh, for M&A activities. So what has happened is M&A activity has somewhat slowed down here in the US. We think this probably also reflects uncertainty about what exactly is going to happen in terms of tax reform. Um, also, you could argue that for many companies, uh, it just pays to wait and see what happens on tax reform before they put in place business investment. So we have this paradoxical situation where business confidence is up in the expectation of reforms, but companies don't actually invest a lot. We have some cyclical rebound of investment in the energy sector, but that's related to the oil price. But otherwise, we see caution. And this is why we continue to think that 3% or even 4% growth anytime soon is just unachievable. Jakob Fels, thank you so much with PIMCO. Always of great value. Look forward to speaking to you, particularly at your next visit to New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.